Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Zane Kaplansky. Zane is a deli king and a mustard maven, most remembered here in the center of the universe for his food truck, Thunder and Thelma, and for his eponymous restaurant, Kaplansky's Deli, at 356 College Street on the edge of the Kensington Market. But after a horrifically long-running and expensive legal battle with his landlord, in early 2018, Zane said enough, threw down his keys, closed his shop, and moved on. But where did he move on to? Well, let's find out directly from the man himself. Welcome, Zane, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Andrew, thank you so much for having me today. I am from beautiful, I don't want to say downtown, but it kind of is, the Fino, British Columbia. Uh, I live right in the center of, uh, of our town. It's a town of about 2,500 people. It's the place that my, my wife was born and her father was born. And we moved here, as you said, in... Uh, 2019, when uh, we realized that we wanted to start a family, well, as parents, we needed us here as well, and uh, it was time to to get out of Dodge. <laughs> well, West Coast Zane, we like that. Yeah, I love it here, and, and uh, I lo- there's a lot of things I love about living here, and especially uh, bringing up our, our baby. Tofino is a wonderful community with all kinds of outdoor opportunities. Toronto is a wonderful city, but as far as a quality of life basis for our, our baby, this place can't be beat. Excellent. Well, let's please go all the way back, get the Zane Kaplansky background story. Like your podcast host today, born and raised in North York, what junior high and what high school did you attend? So actually, born in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, that's right. That's right. For uh, I spent the first year and a half, almost two years of my life. Uh, we actually lived in Dundas, but born in, in uh, St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton. I went to Elkhorn Public School until it closed, and then Page uh, Public School after that. I was at St. Andrews Junior High School, and then York Mills Collegiate uh, for my high school. Excellent. Well, I'm a, a Zion White and A.Y. Jackson boy, so we, we have our rivalries with... Rivals, there you the- go. I love it. Now, Zane, the deli of your youth was Switzer's Deli on Spadina Avenue, which is, of course, long gone, now the site of King's Noodle. Your dad, Sam, used to take you there after work on Sundays. This was clearly a great memory from your upbringing. Yeah, so it was my, it's actually my papa, who's my, my grandfather, my mother's father. And Sam Hirschhorn was in the schmutta business, which any good Yiddish person will know. Schmutta is Yiddish for rag, but it's the colloquial term for the the clothing trade or the, the textile trade. So my papa had a business called My Lady Sportswear. And on Sundays, he used to pay me a nickel a pencil to sharpen pencils. And people told me afterwards, they're like, you know, pencils didn't cost a nickel back then. He was a terrible business person, but a wonderful grandfather. And uh, one of my jobs was to hand out candies to the uh, customers. I would also sweep the floors when, when the, the cutters were and the sewers were finished their day's work. And then uh, we would always head to Switzer's after work. And Bernice was always our, our waitress. She was and is a deli legend in Toronto as far as being a, a server. She she was at Steele's Deli for many years after she left Switzer's. I was her little boyfriend. And she used to have me plates 
take this one over there, take that one over there. My papa and I used to order corned beef sandwiches with cream sodas and a plate of fries, but that was a secret. We could never tell Nana about the fries because she didn't she didn't like my, my papa eating fries. But it was it was a, a magical experience. You know, like I, I love the food, I love the experience, I love being with my papa. And imagine, you know, as a kid, you walk into a place and you're hungry and it smells wonderful, and you tell them what you want and they bring it to you. And the the you know the the paying the bill part is something that that isn't isn't uh, doesn't register with the kid, but that's where when Delhi really attached itself to my DNA, and it's funny too because I have no awareness of Shopsies, which was the rival deli across the street, and it's there's an old parable joke in 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 Yiddish culture that says you know my my uncle Mordechai was a sailor, and his his ship crashed on a desert island and out of the the wreckage he built a little home for himself and two shoals one that he went to every saturday and the other one he would never step foot in and this was the way it was with shopsies and switzers and we were switzers people we weren't shopsies people but shopsies was the place where yitz pensioner started working when he was 12 years old became the manager and then eventually opened yitz's deli and Yitz became my mentor and very close friend. And we're still very close with his widow, Bernice. So as far as we're concerned, there are no delis that I would never step foot in. It's only uh, one big, beautiful community, as far as I know. Excellent. And we are going to dive into all of those Jewish delis <laughs> and get some thoughts. Well, clearly the deli was in your DNA, as you say. And following a bunch of different travels, you worked in different restaurants. You did come back to Toronto, attended chef school at George Brown College. Upon graduation, word is you started a software company and purportedly became a dot-com millionaire in the late 1990s. Is this true or false? Absolutely true. I had some hang-ups about the restaurant business. I, you know, When I was away from Toronto, as you say, I spent five years backpacking around the world. And I worked in restaurants in Australia. I took cooking lessons in China. I started a small chai shop restaurant in India. I worked in a bar restaurant in London, England, in a small town in BC as well. I was a, I was a cook and a dishwasher and a prep cook. I, I worked in all kinds of industries. And then when I went back to Toronto, there was a social stigma to me about, about restaurant work that for some reason I didn't want to pursue it. And I went to George Brown and I went, I finished at the top of my class and I was really excited to, to pursue it. And then towards the end of my, my first year in school, I met the woman who would become my ex-wife and uh, we met and dated and married. And we started this software company. We became dot-com millionaires. The company fell apart and the relationship fell apart uh, with it. And uh, so, so both of those chapters in my life are are over. And then when I when I was looking at sort of the, the reading through the tea leaves and the wreckage of of what had happened, and I tried to find my way forward, I uh, I actually used a book called "What Color Is Your Parachute," and I recommend it so highly to people, and I've recommended it to to so many people because the author of the book really helps you find that thing that you love to do even if nobody was paying you. And there are so many times, Andrew, in my experience owning the deli, when I would say to myself, I can't even believe people are paying me for this. 
This is just so much fun that I would I would absolutely volunteer to do this. And um, that book really helped me find my way back into culinary. It's a bit of a journey of getting from there to opening the deli. But uh, suffice to say that that uh, it really did help me get my life back on track. And and I had a throughout my life I had a bit of a an issue with being a people pleaser. And I think in the hospitality business, that's inherent to who we are. We want to make people happy. But even in my own career, you know, the question of how I went from culinary to dot com and also why I had difficulty going from culinary into culinary. Why would I have this social stigma that I believed in where, you know, being a chef and being a server and being a bartender is a perfectly honorable profession. I loved doing it. So why did I feel I had something to prove to anybody? And I really am so honored to have been given the opportunity to speak to countless college classes, university classes, high school groups. And I love to tell them these stories because, you know, whatever's in your heart is good enough, no matter what it is. Nobody's opinion of you, nobody's idea of what you should be doing matters as much as what makes you happy. And really, culinary and hospitality, food makes me very, very happy. So I'm glad that I finally found my way back to it through that book and that I eventually started the version of Coplancy's that I first opened up. Well, everyone of our vintage Zane is nodding our heads because what color is your parachute had to be the number one bestseller. It was the go-to for every guidance counselor, whether you're at York Mills or A.Y. Jackson. Yeah. Read that book and you shall be solved in terms right. of your life. Now, as you return to the restaurant business, Zane, in June 2008, you opened what is considered Toronto's very first pop-up restaurant as you rented space and started selling smoked meat sandwiches from inside the legendary Monarch Tavern at 12 Clinton Street in Little Italy. You cured, spiced, smoked, and hand-sliced briskets of beef, hand-cut the fries, you made meat gravy, knishes, and cabbage borscht soup from the meat scraps. Now, one quirk about the Monarch was that they let customers bring food in from outside. Is that what inspired you to open up your pop-up in that location? So, first of all, when you say one quirk about the Monarch, there were so many quirks about the Monarch that that was part of its charm. You know, that it was on the side street of a residential neighborhood, upstairs, no sign. It was such an old-school, incredible location, and still is. To answer your question specifically, Andrew, the, what, what drove me to that location was the simple reality that I was broke. I didn't have the money to start a proper restaurant. Uh, I was looking for either a tiny shoebox of a restaurant that was takeout only, kind of like San Francisco that was downstairs from the, from the, the Monarch Tavern, a little takeout only uh, operation, wonderful place. But that's how I knew about the Monarch was that I used to go there and take my sandwiches upstairs. And what happened was, back at the end of the Mets Sundin era of the Toronto Maple Leafs, because they were in the playoffs, with how I know when this was, I was eating my sandwiches, drinking beer at the Monarch Tavern, and noticed for the very first time that a fellow was cooking in the kitchen, there was menus on the table, and his wife was doing the rounds. He was operating out of the Monarch. Two weeks later, after the playoffs were over, he was gone. And I asked Marty, the bartender, 
what happened? And Marty said, well, he wasn't paying rent. So when we asked him to cover his utility costs, he said no and packed up and walked away. And I filed in the back of my mind, you know, if I ever have a restaurant concept and I'm too broke to open a proper restaurant, I could always start it here. And so fast forward to 2007, I developed this smoked meat recipe in my backyard. I was actually managing a restaurant called The Magic Oven on DuPont Street at the time. And I asked uh, Hart Lambert, who was one of my staff, to please bring me back a Schwartz's smoked meat sandwich from Montreal. Anybody who's ever bitten into a Schwartz's smoked meat sandwich will never forget that moment. It is just for, for a deli lover or a sandwich lover, it is just the best. And you can understand then why I was hungering for this or waiting for Hart to bring it back. He didn't. I threw a hangry fit. Why can't you find a decent smoke me sandwich in this city? I should do this. And I had this epiphany. I always knew, Andrew, and as I told you, I had all of this experience working in all of these restaurants. I went to George Brown College. I was an apprentice chef, a dishwasher, manager, bartender, server. I worked in every role there is to work. I prepared myself as well as I could. And I just, I wasn't sure how I wanted to proceed in the world. And at that moment, I knew it was a smoked meat sandwich shop. It was a deli. A lot of people say to me, oh, is this an, a, an old family recipe? I said, man, I Googled it. And I, I, I looked up a, a recipe. And of course, I knew the flavor I was going for. I was going for the Schwartz's flavor. Or as we say in Yiddish, the tum. The tum is the, the flavor. And I knew the color and I knew the texture. And I, I looked up, I bought a book uh, about how to cure a, 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 a brisket. And it called for a curing salt called Morton's Tender Quick, which was a, an important part of this. And I actually have shown my recipe on YouTube and people can, can look and see how I make my, my smoke. You know, I'm happy to, to tell people how I do it. And also the, the spice rub too. And I bought a Bradley smoker, which is like a $400 backyard, four rack electric smoker. Uh, at uh, the Bass Pro outlet in Bond. And the reason I give them a plug is that when I started a business, every month I would burn through one of these smokers and I would take it up to them and say, oh, well, it's not working. And they'd say, how much meat are you putting through this smoker? And I'm like, oh, well, I like to smoke. I was literally using it twice a day. And then after like the eighth time, they said, last one, this is it. <laughs> And that's when I had to buy a professional smoker. So I started this on the cheap. And when I had that Bradley smoker in my backyard and I cured that first brisket and I used the old fashioned dry cure method of applying the rub by hand and applying the, the, the curing salt by hand and you have to massage and turn that brisket every day. Kind of like, I felt like Rocky Balboa, you know, in the, in the, in the refrigerator pounding on those those uh, carcasses on those ribs of the of the hanging beef. This is hands-on food. This is this is really pouring your heart and soul into something. And the first time I smoked it in the smoker and I watched it, it was like 10 or 12 hours. In the winter time, 
2007, 2008. I remember taking it out of the smoker and it was beautiful. It was black and it had all the, the spice rub on it. And I let it cool down. And when it was cool enough to touch, I tore off some of the end. And, I, and the flavor, I, I'm getting goosebumps right now, remembering that feeling. And I literally held this brisket up. And the beef fat is running down my arms and the tears are running down my face because I felt like I had achieved my dream. I I created a great tasting smoked brisket and it wasn't, I would say, perfect in the sense that it changed and improved over the years. I got better and better as I, as I worked on it. But I love telling the story in part because the second brisket I ever made totally inedible. And sometimes I think to myself, if I had done it the way I did it the second time first, I might have said, yeah, I can't do this. This isn't possible. And thrown on my hands and walked away. But by getting it so close to what I was looking for on that first time, it taught me that, you know what? I can do this. And now I need a place to do it. So I I was aware of the Monarch and I went and talked to the guys who owned the Monarch and Louie, Larry and James, sorry, Louie Cristella was the one I first, I first taught and interacted with. And Louie says to me, how much do you want to pay in rent? And I said, rent, I'm not going to pay rent, but I'll cover my own utility costs because the other guy wouldn't. And I'll bring in some new customers for you. So he says, how's $75 a week sound? So for $300 a month, I got the use of the Monarch Kitchen. And it was as good, I should say great, of a place to get started as possible. It cost me a couple thousand dollars to fix the equipment and get the dishwasher running, get the fridges running properly, set things up. But those first few months were kind of like trying to hold on to a rocket ship that's just been launched. I need to give a proper thank you and shout out to a fellow named David Sachs. David Sachs wrote a blog and a book called Save the Deli. And I found him online just Googling, you know, deli stuff over the the period of time. And when I told David that I'd signed the lease at the Monarch Tavern, he says, my girlfriend, now his wife, lives across the street. I didn't even know David was in Toronto. Let's meet the Monarch and talk about what you're going to do. And so I said to him, we're sitting at the bar eating pizza from Batondo. And I said, I'm just going to do a smoked meat sandwich, hand cut fries, hand shaped coleslaw, uh, shrubs, pickles, and that's it. And he said, you're a genius. Even if he didn't actually say that, I'm going to insert that into my memory that that he actually did say it because it's my memory and I can say what I want. He said, you're avoiding the mistake that every single new deli owner seems to make, which is trying to do too much. And you've boiled the entire deli concept down to one plate, one sandwich. I would soon make that other mistake a year later when I opened the deli on College Street. But uh, in the short term, the size of the kitchen, my realization about my own limitations, and my desire to do justice to this sandwich meant that I was just going to do this sandwich. And David wrote an article 
that appeared in the Globe and Mail before I opened. That resulted in me running out of food the first day that I opened. And you make enough for two weeks because it takes two weeks to cure the brisket. So the first batch was gone in the first day. I was apoplectic because in my family, Andrew, the 11th commandment is thou shalt never run out of food. There must always be leftovers. I ran out of food. All this hype, all this work, all this everything. And I'm, I'm one, one and done. And I was literally in tears. And I called David Sachs and I said, I can't, I'm so embarrassed. I, he said, no, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. He said, you're the deli that can't keep up with demand. He said, send messages to all the food writers that you can think of and apologize to the people of Toronto because you'll be back in business in two weeks. Get there, stand in the restaurant, give people coupons. David Sack did for me when I first opened and then did again and again and again for me, uh, more than I can possibly express in gratitude. And, you know, I could spend the entire hour talking to Andrew about all of the people like David, who got behind me and pushed and helped and contributed. Our staff are at the top of the list. Our the, the guests who came and dined with us, of course. You know, there are so many, my investors, suppliers, there are so many people that I have so much gratitude for, for that first year and then helping us open the, the, the restaurant College Street is really an overwhelming feeling. Well, I'm going to double that. Shout out to Pettis podcast guest, David Sachs, who, as you know, wrote the book, Save the Deli, and a little trivia that was originally supposed to be called Death of the Deli. That's right. So thanks to him changing the title and thanks to your success, the deli is back. Now, Zane, you mentioned that first year was a mad crush of customers and media. Now, during that time, a group of customers stepped forward and offered to invest in you to be able to open your own standalone deli, 356 College Street. You open your doors for business September 2009. What was the significance of that particular address? Uh, it's a great question. It was a corner location, uh, which you know is is magic and has a has a patio. It's right on the doorstep of Kensington Market, and Kensington Market was really ground zero for the Jewish migration to to Toronto. Maybe the, maybe you'd call it the second wave of Jewish migration because. The community started a little bit further downtown uh, when we first came to the city. But the Kensington Market was and still is in Cantonese. They refer to it as the Jewish Market. And the actual location that we were in used to be a deli as well. It was called Epicessin. And uh, there were actually a couple of different delis that existed on our exact location. I imagine that both of my grandfathers would have actually eaten at and been to, and my great-grandfathers as well, by the way, uh, those restaurants and those places. And that I was literally following in the footsteps of the deli tradition and my family. And my family, you know, my, my great-grandmother, Molly, had a, a, she used to make corned beef sandwiches and pickled tongue sandwiches. She had like a little smoke shop. They, they, you can still see them on Spadina. There's a couple of these little smoke shops that are small walk-down locations that uh, was her own business. She did very well. She used to make corned beef and pickled tongue sandwiches at home, wrap them in wax paper. And my cousin, Bobby Goodman, who was her grandson, used to deliver to the Schmutta workers 
uh, along Spadina Avenue who were her customers. And, you know, it was a Nicholas sandwich or something back then. And my great-grandfather on my father's mother's side was a shochet. And in Yiddish, shochet means kosher butcher. His name was Schneer Zalman. My name is Schneer Zalman after him. And he had a shop on uh, Nassau Street in Kensington Market. So being close to Kensington, being downtown, being in the heart of what's always been the hub of Delhi in, in the city. And this was really, I think, what David Sachs's article in the Globe and Mail was about, was Jewish Delhi coming back downtown. The entire Jewish food scene traveled north up Bathurst Street, United Dairy, which is United Bakers, which is up at the Lawrence Plaza now, originally was on Spadina. Shops and Switchers, as we said at the top of the, the podcast, were on Spadina. All of these restaurants were on Spadina and on College and so on Dundas. And they all left as, as Jewish people left the area. And this was this is a really important point for me, Andrew, which I wanted to have a deli. I, I had a banner at one stage that said, not a Jew, you're welcome too. And I, I wanted this to be a place where anybody could have the best kinish they've ever had. Anybody could enjoy a matzah ball. Anybody could have a latka. Anybody could get insulted by me if I felt like it, that you didn't have to be a member of the tribe in order to enjoy Jewish food. And I used to, I had these pins, I actually had them in my food truck as well. They used to say, Jew it up. And I, it was controversial because some people, the word Jew as a verb has a negative connotation. And that offends me, that somebody should think of, of Jew as negative. It does. For another generation, you use a phrase like, uh, he Jewed me down. Jew it up means the opposite. Jew it up means do it up Jewish stuff. Jews party like it's, you know, 1899. It's, 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 it's a wonderful thing to celebrate the way our people love to celebrate. And to be able to show that to other people. We used to hold Passover seders in the deli. And I would love it when people who've never been to a Passover seder would buy a ticket and come and join us to see what it was all about. I loved watching somebody face when they ate their very first matzo ball, when they bit into their very first smoked meat sandwich. It really was a community unifying experience. And that's what I wanted the deli on college to be. Well, not only did you keep it at the deli on college, you took it to the road zane. And in 2011, you launched Toronto's first modern food truck named Thunder and Thelma, which traveled to various events, locations in the city, selling food on the street. What was this food truck named after? Who was it named after? So Thelma, Thunder and Thelma was a force of nature in my life. Uh, she was my grandmother, my mother's mother. And she taught me many of her recipes in her kitchen. She loved me and believed in me like no other. Uh, she was also an extraordinarily bright woman. She was ahead of her time uh, in so many different ways. I had I had an artist create like a pinup girl illustration of my Nana that we had painted on the truck, kind of like World War II bomber style with this yellow dress and the dresses is blowing up and you can see the garter and there's there's a bit of cleavage. You know? she, my mother said, 
her mother would have loved that picture. She had she had such a wonderful sense of humor. One of my greatest memories of my Nana was that we used to have a cottage uh, next to hers up in Huntsville. Every morning, my Nana used to raise the curtain of the side window, which was her way of saying that she was open for business. And my siblings and my parents and my cousins, who were also next door on the other side, took that as a sign that we could go for breakfast. And every day on the weekends that we were all at the, at the cottage, we would have breakfast at Nana's. We considered it like a restaurant. There was never any bill, of course. And to watch her in her frilly aprons with her spatula in one hand and her frying pan in the other hand and the smile and the energy and the pure joy, nafis, as we would say in Yiddish, uh, that she had serving us and 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 our friends and and our generations, you know, that my my uh, my nieces enjoyed that as well. It really was a place and a time that I could see that my love of serving other people was something that I got in part from her. And I'm not usually a namer. I'm not usually somebody who names things. But somebody said to me, "Yeah, you know, are you going to give your food truck a name?" And Thunder and Thelma, it was, the, it was the biggest food truck in the city. It was the first food truck in the city, first modern food truck in the city. And we really stirred things up because before we came along, you weren't even allowed to have food trucks except in a very few number of prescribed spaces. And I really wanted to kick down those doors. I really wanted to bring the modern food truck culture to the city of Toronto and I didn't know anybody who embodied that spirit of doing it her way as my Nana Thelma Goodman did. And that Thunder and Thelma food truck, what was the eventual fate of it? Is it still operating out there somewhere, Zane? It is. It was, it was bought by a Mexican show. <laughs> so I was deceived when I bought the truck. Uh, regarding the safety certificate that I was given with it, as a result, was required to do a repair on the truck that wasn't worth what the truck was worth, but sold the truck to somebody who wanted it to use with electric-powered equipment. So they didn't have to worry about any of these repairs. And I believe that person, it was, it was a Mexican food operator, and I'm not sure if he still has it or if he's since sold it as well. But we did replace Sadr Thelma with the Booby Doris, which was named after my other grandmother, Doris Kathleen. Uh, I mean, we can mention briefly that I, I changed my name. So uh, I was born Zane Kathleen. I changed it to Kaplansky, which was my great-grandfather's name. And that kind of addresses the, the, the question earlier about not feeling good about getting to the restaurant business. I really, when I started the deli, really feel like I came into my own, that this was who I am and who I was meant to be. And my great-grandfather likely changed his name from Kaplansky to Kaplan to fit in with Toronto society. Back then, be Yiddish, but look British, was the idea of the day. And in our time now, Andrew, we celebrate the diversity of Toronto. That's, in fact, the motto of the city, strength and diversity, I believe. So changing my own name was my way of saying, I don't need to fit in with Toronto society because I fit in just the way I am. Now, I have to mention, since you did, you kind of did a reverse assimilation 
by going to Kaplansky. And many of our listeners may be wondering if Zane is connected to the Kaplan name prominent in Toronto politics. The answer, of course, is yes. Zane's mom, Eleanor, had completed the Canadian government trifecta, serving as a city councillor for good old North York. She was the provincial member of parliament for the riding where I grew up, Oriel, in fact, becoming a member of Premier David Peterson's cabinet. And she also served as a minister in Jean Chrétien's federal liberal government. And Zane's late brother, David, actually won his mother's former provincial seat and served as minister of both infrastructure and your mother, Eleanor's former health ministry portfolio in Premier Dalton McGuinty's government. Zane, I can only imagine dinner discussions and family gatherings must have been interesting, if not raucous at the least. I, I thank I thank you for, for mentioning them. And, and uh, I'm so proud of their contribution to society. I think that my mother holds the distinction of being the first Canadian Jewish woman to serve in all three levels of government and in cabinet in uh, federal and provincial politics. And to be a groundbreaker and a glass ceiling breaker is a, is a huge thing to be able to, to know that many others who came after you had a slightly easier time because you fought so hard to get where you are. And my brother David too, and I was David's campaign manager when he first ran in the by-election to succeed my mother. And I was also his campaign manager when he first ran for a school trustee in Ward 14. When I first met my wife, Willa, she said, your family is so loud and my family is so quiet. And it's the, 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 the difference between the two families is so stark. She's exactly right. You, you couldn't be more on point, Andrew. The, Dinner time car. There were opinions. There was name calling. I don't ever remember food fights because my parents would not tolerate anybody throwing food. But the yelling that would happen at the table, and and you know, I think it's important for people to have ideas and opinions to share those, to be challenged on them, and also to to learn from other people's perspectives. Just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean you can't still love them. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Zane Kaplansky, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Michael Landsberg, Susur Lee, Steve Simmons, Rob Rainford, David Sachs, Ted Reader, Matt Basili, Joe Friday, and the story behind the rebirth of the CI famous Chinese restaurant. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you learn to have an opinion. You also learn how to deal with people. And you talk about hospitality and those skills you need in running a restaurant. I want to ask you about some of your celebrity clients and interactions. Like me, of course, growing up in North York, it would have been a capital B big deal to have Rush's Getty Lee come into your restaurant, who, in fact, I understand you actually named a menu item after. Probably the thing that freaks me out the most about the celebrity interactions that I had at the restaurant was when Getty would walk into the restaurant, he would say, hey, Zane. And I'd say, hey, Getty. And the Getty Lee knew my name, you know. Uh, I will also confess to you that I employed, in the very last uh, years, the last two years of the restaurant, I employed his niece. And I never told the rest of the staff because his last name was Weinrib. Gary Weinrib was his given name. And his niece... Sophia worked for us, has um, Getty's brother, wonderful guy, Alan, his daughter replied, and she was incredible. 
an incredible staff person. And I knew that the rest of the staff would treat her differently if they knew who her uncle was. I remember uh, from my earliest days in the Monarch Tavern, Getty started coming in. And I would like, your mouth gets dry. You get all nervous. You know, it's you have that, that uh, fanboy experience. You're right. We couldn't go to a bar mitzvah without hearing uh, Red Barchetta and YYZ and the YYZ and, and Tom Sawyer. I mean, moving pictures was the anthem of my of my youth. And I mean, so many of their other albums. And I remember seeing him in the restaurant once. And I kept thinking to myself, I, I have to think of a way to talk to him. And so I had an email sign up list. We were going to do a grand opening. He was headed towards the door and I, I brought over the email list and I said, we're doing a grand opening and I would love to invite you. Uh, would you mind giving me your, your email address so I can send you an invitation? And so he starts to write it. And I said, you know what? We're actually looking for a local band who might want to play. And I just, I left it at like hanging there. I just like left a, a, a pregnant pause. And he kind of like looks at me like, are you for real? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was it was such a great moment. And I did at one stage, he asked me for some of my t-shirts. I said I would let's do a t-shirt exchange. So he gave me some of his t-shirts. We catered for him in the band at different stages. He used to come in and he would order smoked salmon and eggs with salami. And we had two different dishes on the day of the menu. We had salami and eggs, version eggs, and we had we had smoked salmon eggs, but he would order them together. And I asked him about it once, and he said, that was what my dad used to make for me when I was a little kid. And everybody has that dad dish, right, that, that their dad's made for them. And so when I was updating the menu at one stage, I thought, you know what? I should put that on to, to honor him as, as an icon of my youth and of the city and of the country. Put it on the menu. It's the Getty. And so I sent him an email because I now had his email address which I've never abused. And I said, would it be okay if I called the dish the Getty? And so my write-up of it says, closer to the heart, question mark, you betcha. Of course, a reference to their most popular song. So he wrote back and he said, you absolutely have my permission, but I think it should say closer to the heart attack. And I said, I am not putting a heart attack on my menu. Thank you very much for your input. Stick to music, stick to music. Well, Z, you're dead on when you talk about dishes that remind you of your dad. My late father, Bob, worsted eggs. That was the one. So he would have liked that one. Adam Sandler. He was also a uh, customer that enjoyed being at Kaplansky's. Adam Sandler was, I want to say, obsessed. He came almost every day, probably four or five times a week while he was in town shooting. I think it was a movie called Pixel or something like that. The movie itself bombed, and he actually had us cater his private jet flying back to New York. He was such a mitch, and uh, Adam Sandler, as sweet and nice of a person, when he would come to the restaurant, he didn't come alone. He had his wife, he had his daughters, he had the cast and crew. There was 10 or sometimes 20 people, so we would never ask people to move for another guest. But when they would walk in, people would often see, and sometimes people would volunteer and they would say, we're happy to move over so these guys can sit down. He would pay for the meal of anybody who was at all inconvenienced. 
anybody who came over and asked for an autograph or a selfie. He's got food in his mouth. Doesn't matter. He always had time for anybody who wanted to to talk to him. One day, um, I'm walking out of the kitchen and Adam is walking. Adam, like we're like we're friends, me and Adam. Adam, Mr. Sandler is walking towards the kitchen holding a bunch of empty plates. And I said, what are you doing? He said, uh, he said, uh, I'm, I'm busting my own table. I used to be a busboy. I'm, I'm reliving my past. I said, um, I said, what happened to that job? He said, I got fired. I said, yeah, well, you're fired from this one too. Give me a, give me a plate. So I, <laughs> but, you know, completely as nice of a person as you could possibly want to meet. And anybody that I ever see online uh, says an ill word about, about him, you may not appreciate his sense of humor, but lots and lots of other people do. And his story and his approach to making people happy and making people laugh has been incredibly meaningful for me and millions and millions of other people. And his Hanukkah song is played by me throughout the year. He is a brilliant man, and uh, and I'm so honored to have had him as a guest in the restaurant. Those are some celebrity people. Let's talk about some celebrity Jewish delis. Shout out to past guest Steve Simmons, who purportedly dines at Center Street Deli at least once every single day. Steve, I would be interested in your thoughts or memories. And we're going to burn through these because I got a long list for you. Let's start with Mr. Simmons' favorite, Center Street Deli. Center Street Deli is great. We've had their party sandwiches and I've eaten their food more times than I can possibly count. It's very much a Montreal style deli. If you ever go to Snowden in Montreal, you'll notice very quickly how similar those two restaurants are, the original Snowden and Center Street. And I believe they were uh, started by relatives or family members of each other. I was always very careful. I started Kaplansky's with a blue logo because I wanted this to be a Toronto deli. People would say, I want the Montreal smoked meat. And I would say, well, go to Montreal because if you want Toronto smoked meat, come to me. If you want Montreal smoked meat, Schwartz is just down the highway or Snowden. Snowden is great too. Center Street is very much in that Montreal tradition and their success, their longevity says everything that you need to know about it. It's wonderful. Mo Pancers, which has moved a few times along Bathurst. Same thing. I used to, uh, I was I was featured in a Host City magazine, uh, me and Lauren Pantser, the rookie versus the, the legend. You know, those guys, his father, Mo, uh, Lauren's father, Mo, absolutely uh, legendary in the city. I grew up eating Pantser's. I still go to Pantser's. You know, I, I might take issue with the, the quality of mustard that they serve at Panzer's and at Center Street as well. And maybe in time, we can talk to them about, about upping their mustard game. But uh, besides that, Lorne is absolutely uh, a legend and a uh, mensch. He in particular has been very kind to me. And the sense of community that exists in the Delhi community in, Tor- in Toronto fostered by David Sachs himself, has been uh, one of the great joys of my life, being welcomed into that community. There was a movie that was made called Deli Med that I was really uh, honored to be in. My mentor, Yitz Penser, and his wife, Bernice, were in it as well. And it was unfortunate they didn't get a chance to be in more of the Toronto Jewish delis, but Penser's is just top drawer. 
being in that dock, by the way, Zane, you've been immortalized, documented forever, along with Larry King and Alan Dershowitz, right? I mean, I, I uh, if there's two other morons that I could ever be on film with, uh, those two guys are certainly at the top of the list. I remember sitting in the Bell Lightbox Theater, watching that movie for the first time, and every zit on my face was, was so obvious to see on the silver screen. I never imagined what I... Shared a brisket and smoked it in my backyard in Cabbage Town in 2007. That one day I would be sitting in the Bell Lightbox Theater watching myself on a giant screen. And that Jesse Wente would call me up on stage after the, the film. and I would get a chance to do a, a Q&A with the audience. And in particular, give uh, a proper shout out, more than shout out, to Yitz and his family who were sitting in the audience. And to acknowledge the people on whose shoulders we stand, the people who mentored us. I love telling my Yitz story, and I'm going to just tell it now. I met Yitz because David Sachs told me to call him. And Yitz had sold his restaurant, and I called him, and he came down to my, my restaurant. Getty was in the Monarch that day. Yitz says to me on the phone, I called him up, Mr. Pensioner, my name is Zane Kaplansky. Uh, I know who you are. I've heard of you, he said. I said, I would love if you'd come down and be my guest and, and talk to me about what I'm doing because I'm really very new at this. What's your slowest day? Wednesday. Comes down. You couldn't find a seat in the place. Getty was standing at the bar. I muscled a couple of guys out of the way. I got two seats for, for uh, Yitz and his his former count, Moish, and which, of course, it could only be Moish, right? And Yitz says, what are you doing here? This is crazy. What's going on? And for somebody, you know, who who had really created, he was the godfather of Delhi in Toronto. He made Shopsies the success that it was. He invented their takeout business. He started his own deli. He was a master of the business of Delhi as well as the deli business. Yet said to me, always walk around the restaurant with a pot of coffee in your head and remember your customers and their mistresses. <laughs> Man, I confused that too. Never let them know each other. Remember their symptoms. Remember their birthdays. He gave me so much. And a year later or six months later, I was in the Loblaws on St. Clair Avenue. And I ran into him and Mrs. Yitz, Bernice. And I had some matzo meal in my, in my shopping basket. And Yitz says, new, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I said, everyone keeps asking me for matzo ball soup. So I'm going to try and make some. He says, here. And out of his pocket, he pulled a yellow card. I still have it. In black ink, it's embossed from the pocket of Yitz Pensioner. He writes out his matzo ball recipe and hands it to me. He sold his restaurant seven or eight years before. When was the last time he'd made a matzo ball? I mean, we're talking like a, a commercial recipe. We're not talking about a cup of this and a cup of that. We're talking about, you know, big volumes. That he would know his matzo ball recipe, that he would write it down and hand it to me. And at that moment, he became my mentor. And Bernice, Mrs. Yitz, says her jaw hit the floor. She said, you have no idea how important that recipe was or what it cost him to get that recipe from a Borscht Belt chef. So again, Andrew, you know, I, the idea of paying homage to the legends who became before me, uh, the, the men and women on whose shoulders I stand, is... One of the reasons I'm so grateful to be talking to you today, to acknowledge those people. Fabulous. 
Well, let's move to present day. Talk about your current entrepreneurial focus, Mustard. I just want to set the stage. Originally introduced back in 2013. In 2019, you relaunched a line of stone-milled mustards that are today available online in grocery stores and in restaurants. Your slogan, trust a deli to make a great mustard. How do you enjoy being a mustard maven? Thank you for, for asking me about mustard. I When I moved to Tofino, we closed the restaurant on College Street in the beginning of 2018. We closed the Yorkville location shortly after that. The airport restaurant remains open in Terminal 3, and it gives me tremendous joy to be in Toronto at my restaurant, to have my son and my wife with me, and to to watch people enjoy the food that we, we create there. When we moved here, and I had to decide how I was going to move forward with my life, I'm not ready to retire. Uh, I can't afford to retire. And I really wasn't sure. I, I kind of led with my heart to know that I wanted to be somewhere that we could raise our son. And I went to the gym one day. I was looking to a podcast. I came home and I said to Willa, the future is mustard. I want to get back into the mustard business. We had stopped it in 2016 and we revived it, as you said, in 2019. And I really had no idea what that journey would look like. But I have to tell you that... It brings me so much joy. There were things about the restaurant business, about operating a restaurant that really didn't agree with me. I had a really hard time finding and keeping great managers. I was telling Willa just yesterday that as a manager, you have to balance the staff's needs with the owner's needs. As the owner, I I, I was my own original general manager and I was terrible at it because I couldn't balance the staff needs with my needs. I, I put my needs first. I, I'm not as good of a person as I would like to be to put the staff first. And because of the nature of what we did, I wished I would have had the foresight to pay somebody $150,000, $125,000 to be a GM, giving them shares in the business and have them stay. We did have managers too who did have shares in the business, but they went on to other things. And there's nothing that would guarantee us, even paying somebody a big salary, that they would necessarily stay. What I'm saying is that we had we had a level of turnover in our management such that it was never as stable as I would have liked it to have been. And I found it incredibly stressful because my name was on the door. Everything to me was personal. You know, the, the chopped liver has my mother's name on it. And if you're going to do this to it instead of doing that to it, that's personal to me. And it shouldn't be. It's chopped liver. It's just chopped liver. And so being able to let go of some of those operational issues, which we do now because our deli is run by a fantastic team at the airport. And I'm so proud of, I could show you the, the, the accolades that we get on a very regular basis. Mustard is simple. Mustard is a condiment. A condiment requires something else to make it sing. And that's really what is in my heart. I love collaboration. I love connecting with people. I love the magic that happens when you find two people who are on the same page and can laugh together and be together. There's a wonderful deli on Salt Spring Island here, not far from where I live, called Buzzy's Luncheonette. And Howard Busgang, 
very famous stand-up comedian, very famous comedy writer, left LA, moved to Salt Spring, and started Buzzy's Luncheonette, inspired by uh, Walensky's Luncheonette in Montreal. He's a Montrealer. And uh, Howard uses my mustard in his restaurant. And I love the fact that I go to Howard's house, stay with him and his family, spend time together. I get pleasure in his success. I mean, it's it's performance art to go to Buzzies and get to interact with Howard Busgang. And he makes you laugh and he makes you think and he knows that you, uh, you know that he cares about you and he listens to you. And so having my mustard there gives me that connection. And the same is true of all of the shopkeepers, restaurants, grocery stores, butcher shops. We're over 700 locations now. We're growing very, very rapidly in the United States. The mustard business is shelf-stable. Uh, you don't have the pressure of a, of a product that's going bad. Uh, there's no landlord to have a conflict with. It's a great business. Not without its challenges, and we could spend an entire other hour talking about the challenges involved with uh, with the mustard business. But just like I did with the smoked meat sandwich when I started the deli that David Sachs referred to as a genius move, I've taken mustard as the essential sauce, the secret sauce, literally, of the deli business and presented that. And you know, one thing we haven't really talked about is all of the extraordinary media attention that I got. We talked about the movie, but all of the Food Network, all of the CBC Dragons then, the radio show, all of the, the print interest that I got. It was a blessing beyond any comprehension or certainly I never deserved it. And I'll take it. Thank you very much. And to have a brand where people walk into a store. I was, I was in New York City. I was at a butcher shop called Ends Meats in the Essex Market. Uh, this is back in June. And I'm about to start to do a little tasting event where they're selling our mustard. I'm going to have our, our jars out. And I'm going to offer people a sample of mustard with a pretzel or a sausage. I watched two guys from Texas walk over to the shelf and pick up one of my jars of mustard and look at it. And they knew the restaurant from Toronto. They'd been to the restaurant in Toronto. And that idea of you saw me on Dragon's Den, you saw me on Diners, Dragons, and Dives, you ate in the restaurant, you saw the food truck, that this jar of mustard can reconnect you to that moment of joy that you had previously and provide you with another moment of joy because it's a great mustard that continues to make me happy. So I'm overjoyed to be uh, a mustard maven. I love what I do. I love to see new people connect with us through mustard. I mean, even if you've never heard of me, the restaurant whatsoever, like I said, handmade, stone ground, small batch, kosher, gluten-free, fat-free, non-GMO. When you look at the rest, the ingredient deck, it's just mustard. It's a pure and simple, beautiful product. People, mustard is Zane's passion. And we're going to close by you telling us, Zane, exactly where we can follow you and where we get more information, and your mustard. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you so much for having me. I love sharing my story, and I hope that people connect with it. When I first started the food truck, I had a young man come up to us and say, I saw you at Dragon's Den, and it changed my life. I thought, if that schmuck can do it, I can do it too. 
And, you know, I love that. I had a hunger for a smoked meat sandwich. I Googled the recipe. I followed through and I did it. And it sent me on a journey. Whatever your passion is, do it. Kaplanskis.com is my website. We have links to all of our social media on there. I'm active on uh, Facebook. I'm active on Instagram. I love to hear from people if people have questions or ideas or suggestions. If you want to see our mustard in a store near you, let me know. I'll be happy to contact the store and and, uh, and see if they want to carry our mustard. But most of all, uh, I'm grateful to you, Andrew, for for inviting me on the show. Very flattered to be on a show called Toronto Legends. It's it's a, a tremendous honor. And thank you for your thoughtful questions today. Thank you. The pleasure's been money. And it's great to hear you're living the life over at the <laughs> Pino, your family and your business. So uh, wishing you continued success as well, Z. Thanks, Andrew. Being a dad is the best thing that ever happened. Here's to that. And to the listeners, on behalf of Zane Kaplansky, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Do, did, will. The Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.